If you were to ever Google who uh, was the greatest missionary ever, you'd get answers like the Apostle Paul, uh, who was a missionary to the Gentiles. He traveled extensively throughout Asia Minor. He was jailed and uh, martyred for his faith, and he, as you know, wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. Or perhaps you'd get William Carey. He's an English Baptist missionary known as the father of modern Protestant missions. Carey was one of the founders of the Baptist Missionary Society. As a missionary in a Danish colony in India, he translated the Bible into Bengali, Sanskrit, and numerous other languages. Uh, or maybe you get Amy Carmichael. She was a, a Protestant Christian missionary in India who opened an orphanage and founded a mission in Donavur. She served in India for 55 years without ever coming back. And she wrote many books about the missionary work there. Or maybe you've heard of Jim Elliott. He was one of the five missionaries killed while attempting to evangelize the Horani people of Ecuador. The death of these five was a tremendous stimulus to missions among those of his generation, especially due to the works uh, written by his widow, Elizabeth Elliott. And there's a whole other, there's a lot of other names on that list, right? And I'm sure there's tons of names that didn't even make it on that list, but who are doing amazing things for God. But I... I think the greatest missionary ever was Jesus. And consider the definition that I used earlier. Missions is the act of being sent to a culture that is different than your own with a specific purpose of establishing God's kingdom. This includes evangelism, discipleship, church planting, and church leadership development. Was Jesus sent to a culture different than his own to establish God's kingdom? Did he evangelize? Did he share the good news? Yes. Did he disciple his followers? Yes, he did. Did he plant a church? He planted the church. Was he involved in church leadership development? He gave the framework for the development of church leadership through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon the church fathers. All right. Let's get, let's look at the, the scriptures and see the greatest missionary ever in action to see what he has to say about how to do missions God's way. Uh, but I don't want this to be some abstract uh, lecture with no application. So I want to zero in on one specific activity of a missionary that we've mentioned, and that, which I believe that every missionary or every Christian is called to do, whether they're called to be a vocational, vocational missionary like Rachel and myself or, or not, and that is evangelism. And if you want to know if evangelism if you're supposed to be involved with evangelism, I have a three-verse defense of that. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples. Romans 10, 14 through 15, how will they know about him unless they're told by someone? And 1 Peter 3, 15, being ready always to give an answer for the hope you have. We're all called, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are called to do evangelism. All right, so now let's get to the text. We're gonna be in John Chapter 4, and we're going to just read verses 1 through 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well, the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain, explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So what can we see in the story? Well, I would like to point out seven things that I think can help us in evangelism. Number one, Jesus was intentional in his evangelism. Oh, you got all seven of them. (laughs) The scripture says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Although it was the shortest route, good Jews did not travel through Samaria, but instead purposely went around it. Why did Jesus need, why does it say he needed to go through Samaria? And I believe it's because he knew that there was someone there who needed to hear his good news. And what's the application for us? We have to choose to evangelize. It's a choice. We have to be intentional about it. The second thing I'd like to draw your attention to in this story is that Jesus broke through cultural barriers. The first cultural barrier he broke through was a racial or ethnic barrier. Here's a little background information on the Jews and the Samaritans' relationship. When the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, they took almost everyone captive, exiling them to the Babylonian empire. All they left behind were the lowest classes of society because they didn't want that type in Babylon. These that were left behind intermarried with other peoples who slowly came into the region, and the Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group. 
because the Samaritans had a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of law and ritual from the law of Moses and various superstitions. Most Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans even more than they despised the Gentiles because they were, religiously speaking, half-breeds who had an eclectic, mongrel faith. There are three things that stand out to me here is that, number one, Jesus was willing to be seen with a Samaritan. And I'm going to ask you, who are you willing to be associated with? Jesus wasn't concerned with his reputation. Perhaps we shouldn't either. Number two, he spoke with a Samaritan. And the third thing I notice here is that he was willing to use a Samaritan's cup. In essence, he put himself in a position of dependency upon the Samaritan by asking for help, for asking for a cup of water. The second, cult, second cultural barrier that he broke through was a gender barrier. This is significant because, as crazy as this sounds, by tradition, a rabbi would not speak with a woman in public, even if it was his own wife. Yet Jesus did it. He put aside those cultural expectations. There is something that stands out here to me as well. Jesus met with her and spoke with her in public. We should heed his example and do the same. Always minister to the opposite sex in public, not in private. To reduce our temptation and reduce unnecessary rumors of impropriety. What might be even better for you as a human would be to invite your wife or husband to minister alongside of you or in place of you. What's our application here? While we need to be knowledgeable and certainly respectful of local customs and culture, people's souls are ultimately more important to God than any culture's expectation of behavior. Number three, the third thing I noticed, Jesus initiated a conversation with the purpose of evangelism. He started this exchange with a simple question, will you give me a drink? In this case, he moved the conversation from the physical, physical thirst, to the spiritual, to the spiritual thirst very, very easily. And that doesn't always work out so simply for us, but I do believe that we need to intentionally start conversations with, pe- with people with a goal to talk about Christ. And I know this is a radical uh, thing, but, you know, if you were to go up to someone and say something like, hi, how are you? What's your name? Hey, crazy weather today. I know that's radical, but it's really that simple. Um, I think old-fashioned friendliness and willingness to start random conversations is an underrated strategy in evangelism. You should try it. The reality is, you know, most of us, at least in the Western world, we, we are, we're focused on these things. Whether we're in the store, um, wherever. And, and we don't know it, but we're actually craving relationship. So when you start a conversation with someone, you're meeting a need. Try it. Being friendly is an underrated strategy in evangelism. Now, this doesn't mean that every single conversation that you 
uh, engage in will culminate in the presentation of the gospel. I wouldn't hate to put that pressure on you, but the reality is I think we need to intentionally try to have conversations and see where, where we can bring the Lord into it and see what doors will open and then walk through those doors in faith. Fourth thing I'd like to bring your attention to is Jesus used supernatural knowledge. He said, you have had five husbands. Now, he may have been able to know it was, it was odd that a woman was at the well at, at the noon hour. It was the hottest time of the day. So that you may, he may have been able to deduce that uh, something was off, but he certainly wouldn't have known that she had had five husbands. And how did he know that? Because it was, well, it was supernaturally revealed. And what do I mean by supernatural? Uh, was there smoke? Was there an earthquake? Was there lightning? Or there, were there floating objects? No. Uh, the word supernatural simply means beyond or above nature. Meaning that it wasn't known by what could be physically observed. The knowledge came from outside of the natural senses and it came from the Holy Spirit. And our application, or the application for us today, is that he still speaks today. Ask him to guide and empower you by the Holy Spirit when you share with others. For some, it's a thought. For others, it's a picture. I'm not suggesting that we always speak as boldly as Jesus did, as in, you have had five husbands. But perhaps it would be wiser for us to uh, say it in the form of a question. For example, one time when I was having lunch with a coworker, um, out of the blue, I felt that I should ask him. I felt this sense that he was... The thought came to me, he's having an affair. And so uh, I got enough courage, you know, up, and I, so I said, you know, I said, can I ask you a question? Are you having an affair? And, and, and sadly, in that particular case, uh, he said yes. Now, I, I say that only to say that I had a thought. He's ha- it, it was, and, I, and so I prayed about it, and then I presented it as a question. So that's just a, a, a strategy when, you, when you're feeling like God is, move, you know, speaking to you. Ask it in the form of a question. The fifth thing I'd like to uh, draw your attention to is that Jesus confronted her sin. He did not excuse her sin or avoid it, but brought her face to face with it. Of course, he did did that perfectly with love. The application, people need to know that they are sinners. They need to know what sin is. But be careful here. We're not called to condemn the person, but to simply define what sin is according to what the Bible says. And how do we know what sin is? We have to read the Bible for ourselves, taking into account culture and context when it's appropriate. I'm, I'm convinced that it's possible to love people and still call out their sin. Those aren't mutually exclusive. You can love people and tell them they're sinners. Uh, however, I think there are a few keys to this. The first one is you've got to have humility. Uh, we have to remember our own struggles with sin, whether it be lust, greed, pride, anger, impatience, hate, gluttony, lying, etc., etc. Without humility, people will pick up on that holier-than-thou attitude very quickly. Please, you see, Jesus confronted her sin. Do not use that as a, as a permission to go out and tell everyone they're a sinner. You don't try that without humility. And number two, you've got to say it in love, like we're told in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth 
in love. It's not just about speaking the truth. We're admonished, we're told to speak the truth in love. The third thing is that I notice at this point is that it's best to be said in the context of relationship or at least after true interest has been communicated or expressed to the the, listener. In other words, don't let your first words out of your mouth be, you're a sinner and you're doing X, Y, Z. Have a conversation. Let the person know that you care about them. And then, and then as you're led, feel God, will, God doesn't ask us to uh, not call out sin. He just, we need to be smart about it. The sixth thing I'd like to point out in this story is that Jesus stayed on point. He did not get distracted by the woman's strategy to deflect the conversation from her guilt to a philosophical, religious, or doctrinal discussion about worship on the mountain. He was able to masterfully weave her distraction technique into his strategy. What's our application? We've got to be on guard for rabbit trails and misdirection attempts. You know what I'm talking about. As people feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they oftentimes will try to change the subject. Be aware. You'll, get, you'll end up talking about the, some obscure doctrine in the Bible that has nothing to do, that's really not important. And the seventh and the last thing that I'd uh, like to bring your attention to is that Jesus brought her to the Messiah. He didn't leave her wondering what or, more accurately, who the solution was, but plainly stated that he was the Messiah. And what's our application? Don't leave Jesus out of the conversation. As unpopular or simple as it may sound, Jesus' name and the work that he accomplished on the cross are more important than anything else you can do for them. One final point that I would like to bring your attention to is that evangelism breeds evangelism. What was the response of the woman to this encounter and interaction with Jesus? That's right. The woman's response was to go into town and tell everyone about her encounter. Many of these people came to faith in Christ as a result of her testimony. But please notice that she didn't have all of her doctrine figured out. She simply shared what she had experienced in her meeting with Jesus. My last question to you is, what's holding you back? We're called to share. I'm grateful for the Bible, for, very pra- for, for being able to read it very practically, that we can look and see how Jesus evangelized. So decide today, number one, be intentional about evangelism. Number two, to break through cultural barriers. To three, start a conversation with a goal to talk about spiritual things. Four, ask the Holy Spirit for supernatural knowledge. Five, don't be afraid to call sin, sin but please do it in love. Six, don't go down a rabbit trail. Don't get distracted. And seven, make sure you leave them with Jesus. He's the only, only one that's gonna make any difference. Thank you again for allowing me the privilege to share briefly with you and again, all that you do for us, supporting us, loving on us. We're grateful. You're our family. Um, Can we close in prayer? Father, we are grateful for your blessings. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you said you'd never leave us nor forsake us. God, that you provided a perfect example for us of how to live. 
Lord, we pray that we would be uh, your representatives, your ambassadors here in this world, God, as, you, as it gets crazier and crazier, that you give us courage to represent you well and accurately to this world, God. We love you, we honor you, and we invite you to be a part of our day. God, indirect us by your Holy Spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.